Welcome to a recording from a Latrobe Asia public event. The population of Asia is aging rapidly. People are living longer than in the past, and coping with this problem requires thoughtful social security and balancing the interests of different generations. Although nations in the region each have unique characteristics, there are overall trends associated with population aging, which raise implications that extend across most nations in Asia. In this public event, you'll be hearing from Thomas Classen, a professor in the School of Public Policy and Administration at York University in Canada. The lecture was recorded at the city campus of Latrobe University on the 21st of March 2018 in an event co-hosted by the John Richard Centre for Rural Aging Research. I'm going to talk to you today about Asia and ageing, the implications of that, and in fact, what is happening. My talk is going to be composed of four components. First, we're going to just take a look at ageing more globally. Then we're going to step into Asia for the second part of the talk, Third, we're going to examine some of the unique characteristics, features of population aging in Asia, and then what those implications are for us, for other parts of the world, and in fact for Asia as well. Now, population aging is one of the defining features of modern life. And in fact, it's one of the great accomplishments of our times. People in every country in the world are living longer than in the past, and every country in the world is older on average than in the past. People are living longer because there's better health care, especially public health. People are making better choices in their own lives about how to take care of themselves. And in fact, most of the extra years that people are living are quite healthy ones. So we're not talking about extending people's lives in, in hospitals. And the second reason that populations are aging is because women are having fewer children. So they're just fewer younger people in the world compared to the number of older people. Now, I'll tell you some what to me are just almost incredible trends. A child born 20 years ago, on average in the world, has a life expectancy of 65 years. A child born today is going to, on average, is going to live an extra six years and a child born 20 years from now, on average in the world, is going to live to age 77. So in the past 20 years globally, we've given everybody an extra six years of life. And going forward in the next 20 years, that's going to be another six years of life. Now, this is the global average, and those figures will change from country to country. But in the space of 40 years, on average, people have gained 12 years of life. That, to me, is, is a pretty uh, amazing statistic. 
that I think we too often take for granted. In your own family, you can see how that has transpired. I'll ask you to take a minute, think about your great-grandparents. Until what age did they live? Now think about your grandparents. Until what age did they live? Now think about your parents. How old are they or at what age did they die? And then think about your own, own life. What age do you think you're going to live to? And you will see in your own family that there's been an increase in average, average lifespan. Now, the second trend I talked about globally is that fewer children are being born. 20 years ago, globally, women had an average of three children. Today, globally, women on average are having two and a half children. And in 20 years from now, women will have just two children on average. Again, this is the story for the world as a whole. Some countries are going to be higher, some are lower. But the fact is that that, again, is an amazing trend that has impacts on how families operate, on the economy, on how many schools are needed, and so much more. And again, you can trace this trend by thinking about your own family. How many children did your great-grandmothers have? I think many of you will have, have had great-grandmothers that had two-digit number of children. How many children did your grandmothers half. Maybe some still with two digits, but not so many. How many children did your mother have? And how many children do you have or plan to have? Again, you'll see a dramatic decrease over the generations. Now, I'm trying to tell you that Population aging is important, it's consequential, it's a great achievement of our times. But why don't you feel it in your own, own lives? Well, it's because it happens gradually, which is why I've asked you to think back to your own family history about how great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, and yourself, the kinds of choices you've made. And so... In, in most parts of the world, population aging has occurred gradually. Certainly in Australia, it has. Now, just before we go to Asia, I just need to tell you a little bit of uh, something technical, but not hard. That's median age. So when scientists study populations, they look at something that's called the median age. And that is just the age at which half of the people are older than 
and half of the people are younger than. So it's the age where half of the people in a country are older than that age, and the other half are younger. In Australia, the median age in 1970, so almost 50 years ago, was 28. So half of everybody in Australia in 1970 was 28 or younger. At present, it's 38. So we can see population aging has occurred. On average, Australians are 10 years older today than 50 years ago, and that's going to increase in another 20 years. The average age in Australia, or the median age, is going to be 41. So this is now part two of my talk on aging in Asia. Now, if you want to experience population aging in your own, own lifetime, Asia is the place to go. There's a great wave of Asia. I'm sorry, there's a great wave of aging that is crashing over Asia, starting from east to west, starting in Japan. So in Japan, the median age at the moment is 47. So half of, of, of all Japanese are 47 or older. 27% of the people in, in Japan are 65 and over. In another 20 years, the median age is going to be over 50. So half of everyone will be 50 and over. And one-third of everybody is going to be 65 and over in Japan. But that isn't restricted to Japan. That sort of future is in store for other Asian, Asian countries and very quickly. So this population aging wave has already crashed into Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong. In fact, Korea has the, the world's most rapidly aging population. China has already started to become impacted by population aging, and we'll talk about China a little bit more. But it's also places such as Vietnam, and it's shortly going to reach countries such as India, Bangladesh, Philippines, and others. So in China, the median age is, at the moment, the same as in Australia, 38. But in just over 20 years, it's going to be 47, while Australia will still be at 41. So you can see how much more quickly population aging is occurring in China. Now, population aging, as I've suggested already, is different in Asia than in other parts of the world. And that's the focus of the rest of my talk, are these differences. Now, the first difference I've already alluded to, which is the speed of population aging, how quickly something that took 
generations in France or Italy or, or Germany or the UK or Canada or Australia is happening in the space of one or two generations. The second feature is that there's a small welfare state in those Asian countries. And I'll come back to talk about what exactly is a, a welfare state and why it's of concern. The third unique feature is the importance of the family, which is much greater in Asia than in other parts of the world, where, say, in Australia, we've got a more individualistic style of life to family life compared to Asia. And the fourth point I'm going to touch on is the importance of the oldest old and women in particular. So speed. Well, population aging is happening rapidly, more rapidly, more rapidly than in any other place in Asia because, in part, the pace of economic development is happening so much quicker there than in the United States or Britain or Australia, where urbanization, industrialization occurred over 100 years. In China, it's occurred in 20, 25 years. So as people move from farms to cities in order to work in factories or offices or restaurants or other service industries, they, first of all, have fewer children. Now, that's because on a farm, there's a lot of space. You can have five, six, seven children, and each additional child hasn't a great impact on life. But for for migrants moving from a rural area to an urban area, they're almost always in apartments, very limited space. So each additional child incurs a significant additional burden. Second, there's less money to have children because you want to invest in the children that you have. Ideally, they'll become famous and rich and take care of you when you're old. So you in, you pay for the tutors, you pay for the extra English class, you pay for the math class, you save money for them to go to university. So there's an investment that is easier for it to make sense if it's spread over one or two child than over five or six. But And again, those same things happened in your families as well. But they didn't happen all so quickly. As countries become richer, something else happens. Health care improves, especially public health care, which then results in people living longer, people living healthier. So you can see with fewer children and increases in average lifespan, 
you've got a population that ages quickly, often in the span of one generation. Now, the second distinguishing feature of Asia is the small welfare state. Now, the welfare state is just a term that uh, political science professors like to use to say another word, which is government. So the welfare state describes how important the role of government is in our lives. Now, for the most part, throughout human history, there was no welfare state. Think back to your own families. Um, Your great-grandparents, were they born in a hospital or at home? And I would venture there's a good chance they were born at home. And where did they die? possibly at home as well. Well, is anybody born at home now? Well, few, perhaps, because it's a personal choice. But otherwise, we're born in in hospitals. That's just an example of the growth of the welfare state. So the welfare state is now responsible for education, for health care, for public pensions, for income security, for public transportation. Well, that isn't the case in, in, in most of Asia. And to summarize it, the developed or the rich parts of the world grew wealthy before they became old. But Asia most of it, is going to grow old before it becomes rich. So in a strong welfare state, the government takes on a considerable part of what's required to support an older population. But Asians, for the most part, cannot look to government for pensions, health care, and other supports. The third characteristic that uh, I want to touch on in regard to aging in Asia is the role of the family. Because the the welfare state is small, because of the small role of government, there's a bigger role that the family has to play and will continue to play in Asia. But in a way, that's supported by some of the cultural and religious beliefs prominent in Asian countries. But that still means there's some difficult uh, uh, adjustments that families have to make. And I'll come back to that. And one of those, just to pre-shadow, is that usually families are split when younger members move to cities as part of this urbanization industrialization process, and older members remain in the rural areas. Now, family becomes a particular concern 
not for all older people, but in particular for the oldest old, which we'll come to in a minute. But overall, when we look at Asia, intergenerational relations or bonds are still strong, and we don't see intergenerational conflict, but that may change. The fourth difference between Asia and other parts of the world is just the a number of oldest old. Now, oldest old is a term used for people 80 and over. Now, people between 60 and 80, for the most part, in most parts of the world, are still independent. And I always worry when I hear people sort of implying that older people are somehow (laughs) dependent on the state. And certainly in Canada, there's this implied discourse of, you know, older people are dependent and they need the government. Well, I have children who are uh, 11, and they've been needing the government a lot more than most older people for their public education, for their daycare, for their recreational programs. So for the most part, people who are old are not dependent on the government. They have savings, they have family, they have employment, they are independent. But at some point, usually uh, around 80, that's when people start to become more dependent on others and more frail overall. And that's what we're seeing in Asia now. In the world, there are 130 million people, 80 and above, you know, which is truly, it's, it's bigger than the population of most countries in the world. So it's, it's an accomplishment. It's amazing that we have been able to extend the average age so that swimming people are over 80. In China, India, and Japan, just those four Asian countries, there are 44 million people, 80 and over. But Asia is going to have to cope with this increasing number of older older people in a way that the West has not. Now, for the rest of my talk, I'm going to exclude Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, because those are the rich parts of Asia. There is a welfare state there. I would argue those countries or the governments, the people in power, have been quite quite lazy to extend the welfare state to older people. There is still this view that it's up to the family, and in particular women, a topic that I will come to in a minute. But those, those countries are rich 
enough, and I'll predict that in the next few years, the increasing number of older people who tend to vote a lot more, not two or three times each election, but as a greater number than younger people, that older older voters are going to press the governments in the developed part of Asia to improve the services to older people. But I'm going to focus on the poorer parts of Asia. And I'm going to look in this last part of my talk on the implications for Asia and beyond. In particular, there are two topics I'd like to focus on. First, on what sort of innovation, what sort of innovative responses to population aging can we see in Asia? And then what can we learn from those? Do they perhaps apply to us in the richer parts of the world? So in Australia, in Canada, there are public programs, there are public funds to support the health care of the oldest old social security programs, public pensions, subsidized housing, accessible transportation, and more. And uh, I know that because of my own mother. She's 93. She lives on her own, but only because there are those services available. There is uh, a doctor who, who comes to her apartment and sees her. There is accessible transportation that she can order. There is public health care. And in Australia, as in Canada, if there are many older people require, who require supports, then the government is going to perhaps build a home of some sort, is going to hire specialists. Well, that's not going to happen in Asia for the foreseeable future in the less developed parts of Asia. And it's not, it's not even happening very much in the developed parts of Asia. So what are Asian countries doing to prepare, to adjust well, some examples are in India, the government has a savings program in place that it will match what poor individuals contribute. So you can contribute just a few pennies at a time on the assumption that, you know, that's going to be of some value in the future in a country where there isn't any extensive welfare state. Um, another interesting response is preparing younger women with education and employment skills, but in particular, preparing them to take on the kinds of roles that they have to or want to take on, which is helping their older family members. So it's become clear 
to governments that for the foreseeable future, women are going to be at the core of providing assistance to the to the oldest old. And so why not prepare them to do that in a better way than they could otherwise? In Asia, there's more emphasis on health care that's provided in a mobile way, mobile way, either physically or through technology, as opposed to building a building that's going to be a hospital for the next 120 years. Now, families have started to make their own responses such as often as part of urbanization, children, adult children, will move to cities, but their parents are are left behind on the farm, and there isn't anyone to take care of them. So there's a very big trend in Asia now of neighbors forming the support groups for the older parents. There have been associations of widows because women, as I'll talk to in a minute, are more likely to be older than men. So women face a particularly complex situation in Asian countries, as indeed in developed countries as well. First of all, because you're going to live longer, an average of four years. So I I often propose that the age of becoming old should be four years higher for women. So you get an extra four years of being young, until then you become old because otherwise you're older for longer than are men and that that doesn't seem to be fair. And also, see, most older men are married, but most of the oldest, oldest women are not because their partner is not uh, alive anymore. So the burden of a small welfare state falls disproportionately on women, which is why, as I mentioned earlier, there's a recognition that there are ways to prepare for that. So in some countries now, women taking care of an older family member in their own home can apply to start a small-scale business where they take care of, uh, of other older people in their neighborhood. And there's some small support from the government for these kinds of enterprises. Now, <clears throat> what can we learn from Asia? Well, 
certainly other parts of the world, such as South America, such as Africa, are going to age quickly as well. So Asia is often the place those countries take a look at and say, well, we're not there yet, but how are they coping over over there? The second thing we can learn is that family remains a key pillar of support, but that in Asia there's been a more creative mix of family and government and others, such as these small businesses that that governments assist women in starting up who are going to then earn some money from taking care of their older neighbors whose children have perhaps moved to an urban area. Another uh, another important thing we can we can learn from Asia is this emphasis on home care that in the past certainly in Canada at this point uh, I'm sure my mother would have been in a long-term care facility because that's what would be expected of somebody who is not able to be so mobile and who does not want to, to live with me and my brother, even though we're very, very good children, I should add. <laughs> she just wants to be on her own. She says, I love you, but I'm not living with you. I don't know why she says that. I'm not sure I should think about that too much. But so in the past, she would have been in a home with all sorts of other older people, as opposed to in her own apartment. But there's been this slow shift towards home care, keeping people at home, which in in Asia is already there. In Canada, we're still struggling to make that happen. And the idea of a doctor going to somebody's house is, you know, in Canada, it's very hard to make that happen. Um, I think we can also learn that this dramatic aging is a tremendous global, national, regional, community, family, and individual achievement that people are living longer and have your life. So I don't want you to think of it as a problem, which too often it's portrayed as a problem because we always like to read about problems, and the media knows that, so it likes to present us with problems. But in Asia, we can see that even though it's happening very quickly, there isn't Chaos. There isn't a breakdown of the family. There isn't. There are. There. There. Not old people dying on the streets. So even with a small welfare state, even with rapid population aging, the 
story is a story of success, albeit not perhaps so much for women who are still not having the choice to say, you know, I don't want to stay at home and take care of my aging parents. But that, I think, is an area where perhaps Asia can learn from other parts of the world. So I think it's a story of resilience, of adaptability, of using low-cost solutions, of not just saying, let's build another hospital or or let's hire some more people. Um, So there... We don't see massive disruption or upheaval or chaos. There's been adjustments that in the West took 100 years. Those have happened much more quickly in Asia. Now, in conclusion, I'd like to just share with you what brings me to think about aging in Asia. As you know, in our own lives, whether personal lives or professional lives or lives as university students, there are problems that arise. And, you know, some times I'm even asked to comment on problems. But those problems are part of life, but then when I think about Asia and how this rapid population aging could have been a problem in, say, a particular region, perhaps, or within a particular cultural group, uh, I'm really heartened that it hasn't. And so then I say to myself, well, if a country or a family or a village can experience that sort of rapid change that impacts pretty well everything, then whatever my personal or professional problems are and whatever solutions I can can figure out, which usually there are, gets put into perspective, and I say, well, if it can work out over there, then whatever it is, I can make it work out in my own life. And I hope when you're faced with problems in the future that perhaps you'll think back and say, well, yeah, it'll work out, whether you're 18 or 81. Thank you very much. Uh, Firstly, thank you very much for a most interesting talk. Um, uh, My name is Peter Dowling. I'm an emeritus professor from the business school at La Trobe. And basically, I just wanted to ask you to comment on two things that have happened in China. Um, I remember quite some years ago about 
maybe 15 or 18 years ago, I was in an American hotel in Shanghai and the morning English newspaper announced that uh, the population of Shanghai was now officially 20 million, not 16. And that's simply because they decided they should count the workers that lived in the, uh, the, shipping, the shipping containers on the building sites. So that just the way people can be organised was, uh, I was quite amazed by that. Uh, the second system that China has operated, which uh, clearly has impacted on demographics, is the hukou system, where both schooling, work, health was tightly controlled within regions. And that, um, some colleagues and I, we've done some work on that. That that has changed. That's loosened up. Uh, but I haven't seen a lot of research that's really looked at the impact of uh, a diminution of the hukou system uh, because that really has must have had, uh, in terms of urbanisation, a big impact. So I just wonder if you could comment on those. I thank you for those uh, excellent questions. Certainly China, because it's so large in terms of its population, it's tried very hard to control urbanization and even to, uh, to control birth rates through the one-child policy. So China, what it's tried to do is to get the people who are going to urbanize to just be that working age population between 20 and 50 and keep others in the countryside for as long as possible. And as you say, it's changing now. But if you want to urbanize, if, if you want to create economic growth, then yes, you want to get the people who are between 20 and 50 into cities keep the older people and the children in the countryside. And, uh, I mean, we can debate whether it was an appropriate strategy, but I think it worked because the, the industrial gr growth has been so quick in China. Can I just add... Uh, uh I'm Irene Blackberry. I'm the director of the John Richard Centre at La Trobe University. We've just uh, completed a study last year actually looking at exactly uh, the point that you raised before about the hukou system and then also the impact of, you know, how urbanisation, I guess, you know, like uh, older people having to move to Beijing and in particular to look after the grandkids. So we're still analysing the findings and we hope to be able to share the findings uh, later this year. Um, so you explained mostly at the end uh, what uh, we could learn from Asian countries and I wanted to have your opinion on maybe the other way around. Uh, for example, in Europe, I think uh, we've been coping with ageing population via immigration after the Second World War, mostly from... Uh, like northern European countries, we're taking from southern European countries, and now it's more from uh, young African population. Is immigration a solution for Asia? Well, that's uh, another 
excellent question. And certainly immigration, in a way, has been the solution for China, but it, it's been internal migration and, you know, shifting people from the western part to the eastern part. For other countries like Japan, it's not because it just wouldn't work to have immigrants coming into what is a very homogeneous society. My own feeling is, and I come from Canada and uh, I'm an immigrant to, to Canada because I was born in Brazil and my wife was born in in uh, South Korea. And in fact, 50% of people living in the city of, of uh, Toronto, they were born outside uh, of Canada. So the, I come from a place of a lot of immigrants. But I think from the perspective of governments, immigration is is a lazy policy. It's just saying we're going to get some people and we're going to bring them over either permanently or, 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 or temporarily and have them work here because we can't figure out how to make the people we I have do this sort of work. So I uh, I would rather the governments put the stress on getting women to work or older people to keep them employed or people with disabilities employed rather than what I think is often the e- easier solution, which is, you know, uh, a temporary foreign worker program because we need people over here. But having said uh, how that, certainly immigration is one way to deal with aging populations. But it's got to it's got to be done in a careful way. Uh, thank you very much. I really enjoyed your uh, talk, and I'm. Uh, I'm now working for an organisation called National Seniors and uh, I've been reading a lot of reports since I took this job up. I used to be a journalist and I've been reading a lot about the baby boomers and their health problems and in Australia they say that they're three times more likely to have, and I can't think of the exact phrase, but it's something like comorbidities or, you know, these issues that they've got than their generation before them. So that's the first thing I wanted to say because... All the assumptions about the present generation living longer are based around the fact that they have been up to this point. And I actually am seeing more and more evidence that it's not going to be quite the same over the next 15 to 20 years. Which brings me to the problem that's actually appearing in our society, which is the diabetes problem that's popping up here. When I was working as a journalist for ABC, we had a program that went into Asia and we were asked to do a program called it's like a health program we did as part of the abc asia pacific service the government actually axed our television service but one of the um, programs we did and we were told to do was about the growing problem of diabetes 
and I've still got this figure in my head, and perhaps you can tell me that it's right, but there was one expert said that if diabetes was a country, a separate country, it would have a population of about 500 million. I thought the figure was ridiculous, but that's what they assured me. And they said that there was childhood diabetes appearing in Singapore, China, India, etc. So the question I really want to know is, well, if that is the issue, this is going to be a much more complex problem than what we've actually heard. Another uh, excellent question. Thank you. Yes, I mean, obviously, as countries urbanize, as people start to live in urban in urban areas, the kinds of of health conditions that become prevalent change, and diets change, and people eat more processed food in part because perhaps the two parents are employed and there isn't that sort of time to spend in cooking. So, yes, I mean, as the population becomes older, there are going to be more medical conditions as well. But overall, the story is that people are living longer and the fear and fewer babies are dying in the first year. But you're quite right. We can't just assume we're all going to live to 95 if we, you know, don't do some things that we're told are good for us. So before you eat that extra slice of pie or have a, another beer or smoke another cigarette, they may say, well, yes, you know, there are impacts. So, yes, I think, I think it won't happen just on its, uh, just uh, automatically. Good afternoon. My name is Mila. I'm a community leader from the Filipino community. And my question arises from an internal research I did years ago. It concerns the subpopulation of grandparents who migrated from their origin or country of origin to an arriving country to look after grandchildren so the working age children can work. You've spoken about internal migration from rural to urban for working age kids and the parents looking after the grandchildren in farms. That actually happens in, in, ter in terms of external migration as well. A case in point are countries like China, Thailand, the Philippines, and uh, Bangladesh, Sri Lankan countries. A case in point is my own community, where in the 1980s, we had a large number of grandparents come to Australia to look after their own grandchildren, so their own children who were working as engineers, teachers, nurses, doctors in Australia could continue working. Move forward 25 years later and the grandchildren are grown up. The grandparents are still in Australia, but on bridging visas. They are not permanent residents, but they cannot attain or avail of any community services here either. A famous case about five years ago was about a Chinese lady who was here for 15 years looking after the grandchild, but when the case came up for her permanent residence hearing to come up, she was denied and had to go back to China, and that created a controversy. Uh, 
It's actually not uncommon in my own community. So my question is, what happens and what are the policy implications in Australia of this ageing subpopulation from developing countries? Well, and uh, I'll tell you that that is is a common picture in Canada as well and in other countries like the United States. Um, It's obviously a difficult situation for all involved because everyone's acting in their boat in their own in their, in their own best interest and the grand and the grandparents they want time with their grandchildren the adult children they want some help and perhaps to make sure that that their that their, their particular language and culture is being shared uh, and governments are c- concerned that these older people are coming but that they've never perhaps paid taxes or made a, a contribution to, to pension plans. So what can be done? That's, you know, that's, I don't think there's much that can be done. I think what I would suggest is a greater attention on the part of the adult children to the implications of that choice to ask their parents to be coming over because I think it works out well in many cases if it's for a shorter time period but if it as you say, if it's 15 years at that point, those kinds of problems occur. And, and I speak from experience as someone who's had my parents-in-law come from Korea to Canada for short periods of time that should we ask them to stay for longer? Will they be happy what are the implications? It, it isn't easy, that's for sure. Hi, I'm Ludi. I study social work at Melbourne Uni, and I'm from China. I have a question about the public attitude towards the uh, aging population. Um, I feel both in Australia and in Asia, like people tend to donate money to the Children's Foundation rather than to the aging population. And also at social work, I noticed that fewer people want to choose a career in the aged care industry. And it's the same for a lot of professions, such as nurses, etc. And the same in both Asia and Australia. So like, I feel the public is aware of the issue of aging population, but they just don't want to put much effort, money to into that industry. So I want to know how can you shift the attitude of the public? Yeah, thanks. Thank you for the question. Well, Certainly, for governments, it's more appealing to build a school or a university than to build a long-term care facility. And certainly, when I teach my own students in Canada, for the most part, 
they're not so keen to, you know, perhaps pursue careers in gerontology or social work in respect to older people. And, you know, I'm not sure that that's all so bad. I mean, I think we should focus on the children because they are our future and and certainly people in their 20s should not be worried about aging populations all that much. I mean, I like to think that most older people and who even knows what an older person is? You know, is it 60, 70, 80? I mean, I don't know. I, the, the, I show you numbers that seem to suggest 65 is when people become old. Uh, uh, Donald Trump is 71. You know, is, is he old? You know, I don't know. I, you know, is my mother old? You know, I don't know. Am I old? Well, let's not go there. Are you old? Well, you're a little bit older than uh, a couple of days ago. Um, I think it's important for older people, I think, when they start to perhaps reach the age where they start to think about, you know, what will happen when I'm 70 or 80 or 90. I, th- I think those are the people who we should be focusing on and making sure those people are advocating, are uh, the pushing governments, uh, are perhaps encouraging the social work profession and to pay more attention to the needs of older people. I think what I'm saying is that the older people should be the ones who are pressing for whatever change is required. I think they're in the best position to speak to politicians, to speak to others. So... I worry that there's always a danger of intergenerational uh, conflict or pressures within a family or within a university even, like, you know, how come we have all these older profs earning a lot of money and the younger profs, there aren't any jobs or, you know. So I think we always have to tread very carefully when saying something about one group not having enough or another group having too much. And that's not to say that we shouldn't talk about it because we should. But if the older people are not being well served, I think they've got to speak up. That's well and good and true when you're talking about uh, the ageing population standing up, putting their hand. But, you know, I also travel uh, extensively around uh, Southeast Asia. But the problem is... The, these 
these countries have an issue with their governments, the, the corruption, um, trying to deal and persuade uh, elections. How do you get governments that are fairly dictatorial in their approach um, to focus on this group when they're looking at lining their own pockets prol- um, prolifically? Well, yes. Well, that's – I mean, th- that's a problem of, you know, of corruption and uh, of taking care of your own particular religious group or, or ethnic group or, or, or her region in the country. And that is is not the way to go, but obviously how to prevent it is one of those $64,000 questions. It's actually not a question. It's just uh, you talked about uh, how innovative uh, some Asian country is coping with this aging problems. It just uh, I was just reminded of because uh, I worked in Japan for one year, but uh, not for the aging industry. Uh, I remember the Japanese government, because they have this very severe aging society with low fertility problem, uh, they're saying they will use the advanced uh, technologies such as AI and robots to help coping this kind of uh, problems. I, and I think it's quite innovative and very in Japanese way. Um, and also, uh, I'm from China, and uh, the region I come from is also facing very severe aging um, problem. Uh, the the province is called Jiangsu. It's relatively quite rich uh, area in China, and actually, um, because we and Japan, we face the same kind of problem. So there are quite a lot of like international exchange and uh, cooperation pro- programs. Uh, regarding to this Asian industry between China and Japan, just some information <laughs> if you're interested. Yes, uh, and there and there there are lots of solutions. Like you know, for example, how about uh, a tax credit if you live within a kilometer of your older parents or how about a tax credit if you buy a house in the same neighborhood as your aging parents so there are all kinds of creative ways for governments and other groups to to make a situation that perhaps isn't ideal uh, but uh, that it can be improved on. It's clearly an interesting uh, uh, topic, isn't it, to to discuss? And uh, it's uh, give me a lot of uh, insight, I guess. You know that I haven't even thought about. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, aging in Asia. I mean, obviously, everyone is aware of of the speed of uh, aging in Asia. But you know, uh, your talk, you know, has been fantastic in terms of alluding to, I guess, the next layer in terms of the un, I guess, you know, unseen, I guess, you know, issues and also ways that we can, I guess, think about, you know, how we can apply that here in, in Australia. So thank you very much, uh, Tom, for coming here all the way from Canada and sharing your uh, 
knowledge, you know, about Asia uh, today. Uh, really, really appreciate uh, you coming and giving uh, us uh, the talk today. So, on behalf of Latrop Asia and in conjunction with the uh, John Richard Center for Rural Aging uh, Research, uh, would you all please join me to thank you? that everyone has signed up with Latrobe Asia to uh, have the, the news and updates uh, from Diana. If not, uh, please contact Diana. And uh, we also have uh, our own uh, John Richards Center uh, mailing list. So if you uh, want to be uh, to hear more news about aging and, you know, particularly aging in Asia, please let Diana know and then we can link you up with our mailing list uh, as well. But thank you all for coming. Uh, it's been fantastic to have you all in here and have some input. So Tom's uh, contact details obviously is in there. So he's going to uh, come to Albury Wodonga to my campus uh, Latrobe uh, tomorrow to give a talk about the public and private uh, pension systems in Canada and very also exciting, very exciting, very exciting topic, you know. Very exciting topic. It's, it's, it is. It's it sold is. out already, so you know, yes. but we'll find some space for you. That's right. And then we'll have we'll have another talk in Bendigo as well on the Monday the twenty sixth. So busy times for talk. Yeah. We'll go ahead. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you.